Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you who uh, are new or have forgotten, uh, my name is Brian Regeer, pastor of Worldview and Missions here at Faith. Um, pastor Steve, our regular preacher, is reloading uh, in three weeks, or, or taking three weeks to reload, and Eric and I will be sharing the preaching responsibilities. Uh, I'm especially looking forward to this time uh, because of the, the the subject matter today, delighting in God's Word. I've taken extra time this week just to soak in God's Word with the intent of making sure I was delighting. And it was wonderfully renewing. And uh, I, I trust these minutes will be renewing for us as well. And toward that end, let's just commit uh, this message to the Lord. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you how you reveal to us uh, your truth and yourself. It all points to you, Jesus. And when we open your word and come to you through it, uh, you work there. And you move our hearts and you change our our desires. And in the end, if we come rightly, we delight. And, And we do this all together as a church family. And we ask that these minutes would be especially uh, renewing today. We uh, commit, commit them to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Pastor Steve has been talking about the Lordship of Christ. And uh, each week, particularly last week when he talked about the Lordship of Christ in work, uh, he, he talked about how there isn't in life a Jesus category over here and an everything else category over here. I mean, Jesus isn't just Lord of Sunday and then, you know, we go do our own thing during the week, but he is Lord of all. It is Jesus all the way down. And this is a particularly Christian way and a right way of thinking about all of life, but we don't get very much help out there in thinking about the Lordship of Christ In fact, if we could choose one word that would describe modern life, it is the word fragmentation. We are fragmented and distracted with so many shards of existence going all over the place that it is hard for us to keep our minds on any one thing. I I see that our college students are filtering back to us over these couple of weeks, and uh, They make me think of my own student days whenever I see them. I don't know if uh, students read this stuff anymore, but when I was uh, a student, I discovered a poet by the name of T.S. Eliot. And he worked about 100 years ago, exactly 100 years ago, he was getting going. And he wrote a poem early in his career about a guy trying to ask a girl out for a date. This This is not a joke, this is a poem, poetry. Um, and the problem this guy had was that he kept getting distracted by all of these different things so he couldn't get his mind together and ultimately his courage together to ask this girl out on a date. Let me read you a couple of lines. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. 
Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, and the women come and go talking of Michelangelo. All right, the, the whole thing is like that. You read this and you're like, well, what is this poem about? It's about fragmentation. You got all of these images. So you got the night sky, but it reminds him of a, of a patient who's being operated on and his body isn't the body of a person. It's just an object that somebody is cutting on. And you got hotels where people don't rest well and bad restaurants where people pastime and society types talking about art even though they don't really understand it and teacups and wisps of smoke and trinkets and the whole bit and in the end the guy can't do anything. It's interesting. Eliot became a Christian toward the end of his life and his later works, especially his his very last stuff, uh, began to take on biblical images as his new worldview began to come together. And, and he came up with a line that I just love. The still point of the turning world. He talked about the still point of the turning world. His, his world before was fragmented. It was just noisy and, and, and distracting. But when he became a Christian, he now had the capacity to rest and to recognize that there was in God a still point of the turning world. And you know what? We need a still point in the turning world today, don't we? I mean, we're about 100 years after Eliot. Our lives are even more fragmented than during his time. Uh, We've got people walking around with like three screens, you know, and the Twitter feed is going and you hear their phones are ding, 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 ding. It's their Facebook pages updating all the time. Uh, you know, and then you got soccer practice. And then let's teach a little Sunday school, you know, and go through the drive through because we're hungry. Piano lessons. And we have flickering pixels everywhere, billboards. I mean, just noise and confusion. And uh, we need a still point of the turning world. I think this is especially true during the month of May, as we get deeper into this month. Christmas has to be the busiest time of the year, but it's the intentional busiest time of the year. I think May has got to be the most unintentional busy time of the year. It's just things are ending and beginning and we're running and we're going, and we need a still point in the turning world and, and what we're suggesting to each other today as we go to Scripture is that God's Word is that still point of the turning world. And, and, and the way God's Word works is you can't just take it and shoehorn it into your life amidst all of your busyness. We have to wrap our lives around God's Word, the still point of our turning world. And our idea today is very simply this, we find delight when God's word becomes that still point of our turning world. It's about delight, it's about desire, and it will be kindled as we spend time there. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible. If you crack your Bible in the middle, there's a pretty good chance that you'll land right in it. 
And uh, we don't know very much about Psalm 119. How did it come into the Psalter? Uh, It came in pretty late. It's very possible that it was penned during the Babylonian captivity and came back into the land with Israel. Uh, It is written from an individual perspective. In other words, you've got one person who is uh, reflecting and delighting on God's word. He's very possibly a priest. We don't know who he is, but he's very possibly a priest because he has this access to God's word. He's also writing during a time where a lot of people are forgetting God's word. So we think maybe, you know, of the time of Ezra, they're back in the land. Maybe after Ezra, people are forgetting God's word. And this is a, this is a priest who is uh, calling people, but first of all himself, back to delight in God's word. If you'll take out your bulletin insert, the little purple insert that you have in your bulletins, We're going to answer three questions today. They're all very practical. First of all, how does the psalmist express delight in God's word, the still point of his life? And we're actually going to do a quick overflight of Psalm 119, the whole thing. In the second part, we're asking the question, what does delight in God's word, the still point of life, look like? And we're going to drop down into one of these parts or stanzas. And we're actually going to read it together out loud. And in the third part, we're going to ask the very practical question, how do I find delight in God's word, the still point of my life? Uh, In answering the first question, how does the psalmist express delight in God's word, the still point of his life? Uh, I want us to note five features in this psalm, and this will help us become more familiar with the book so we can move around in it and know what we're doing. First of all, this psalm is an acrostic, uh, which just means that it's divided up, uh, in this case, uh, according to the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Uh, there's 22 sections, that's because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. If you look, you've probably, you probably have unless you have an electronic version that doesn't include this. But if you have a traditional Bible, it'll give you these kind of funny names at the top of each of each section, Adif, Olive, Bait, Gimel, Dalit, and so on. Those are just the names of the letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It'd be like A, B, C, D, E, F, just like that. Um, and, and actually, if you take a Hebrew Bible, it's fascinating, You just look at this and you'll see that each line begins with the letter of its respective stanza. So you look at the first section and it's Aleph, 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 and then Bait, 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 just like that. And this was done for a couple reasons. First of all, as a memory technique. So uh, young boys in particular would memorize the whole thing and a great deal more than this. But that having that character at the beginning of each line would just kind of, it'd be like home base for them. They'd be say, oh yeah, now I'm in Zion or Yod or whatever, and they'd be able to, 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 to locate that. It's a memory technique. And, and it's also an artistic constraint. Robert Frost, the American poet, said that poetry without meter, or in other words, rhythm, is like playing tennis without a net. It's, tennis without a net is kind of dumb. I mean, because there, you need a, you need boundaries in order to make the game competitive and interesting. Same thing in literature. You need these artistic constraints, and then within these artistic constraints, you see the artistry 
and the beauty of the uh, of the biblical poetry. So that's the first the first feature. Uh, the second one is that there are eight verses per stanza. Right, that's that's that doesn't vary. There's eight verses in every part. Third feature is that each verse is written in what I call in stereo. In other words, there's an A part and then there's a B part. And it's a little bit like when you go to the eye doctor. You know, they have you read the you read the letters with one eye covered up or closed, and then you read it that way. And then ah, you know, you're, the idea is you want both your eyes tracking so you can see the letters in stereo. And, and when you read these verses, the, the significance of the verse is in looking at how the A part tracks with the B part. And, and this takes this takes a little bit of uh, of work. Um, what I like to do is to read the A part, and then read the B part, and then say what question is being asked here. All right. So, for example, in the in the very first verse, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law. Of the Lord. So I look at this and I say, okay, what question is being asked? What do the blameless do? That's the question. They walk in the way of the Lord. And so then if I want to meditate on that verse, then I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, am I walking in your way? Am I blessed? And I have this conversation with God and reading this verse leads into meditation. Or look at the, look at verse seven, same. Same uh, same stanza. I will praise you with an upright heart. That's the A part. When I learn your righteous rules. That's the B part. So the question is, what will happen when I learn your righteous rules? And the answer is going to be, I'm going to praise you with an upright heart. So then if I'm meditating on that, I say, well, Lord, am I praising you? And if I'm not... Then, then perhaps I'm not learning and internalizing your righteous rules. So each verse is, is written kind of in, you don't have to do that with your eyes, but kind of written in stereo like that, and you have to look at how the A part works with the B part. Fourth feature, there are eight words used to refer to God's word. Uh, you have the word... Uh, law. This is direction or instruction. It refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. The, the, the word word, or maybe your Bible says saying. This is a special word of God's revelation of himself. In fact, sometimes the Ten Commandments are called the Ten Words of God. Commandment. It's a definitive, authoritative command. Statute. Thing inscribed or a thing written down. Judgment. A judicial decision. It's a binding law. Precept, it's a poetical word for commandment found only in the Psalms, precept. Testimony, a declaration of the will of God. And then way, or maybe your Bible says path. This is the the pattern of life marked out by God. Interesting thing, each verse in this Psalm contains one of those words. There's one exception. It's like he gave us this intentional flaw just to see if we could find it. But every other verse has one of those eight words. Uh, fifth feature. There is progress in this psalm from despair to delight. 
Right? In other words, it's not just a bunch of random sayings about, uh, about God's word. If you pay attention and if you group the different parts together, you can see that the, that the psalmist really does move from despair, and at the end he is delighting in God. Uh, look at Aleph and Bait, the first two stanzas. These are kind of like an introduction. And they are a blessing for those. They describe a blessing for those who obey God's law and the blessing of being cleansed. Uh, so here we have the most well-known verse in the psalm. Verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Implication being if a young man can do it, then certainly a young woman can do it. And then a mature man and a mature woman can, of course, also do that. Uh, Gimel, and all the way through Vav, the next few stanzas, this takes us down through verse 48. Here he complains about the wicked, but he takes comfort in God's word. Verses 23, 24, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight, they are my counselors. Verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Always in this psalm, there's this this desire language. Enlarge my heart. Make me want you more. Uh, The next grouping, Zayin through Yod, takes us down through verse 80. Uh, Here he looks at God's provision in the past as the grounds for his hope in the future. In other words, God, you've been faithful to me in the past. I conclude, therefore, that you're going to be there for me in the future. Verses 49 and 50. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. Kaf through noon takes us down through verses 120. Uh, here, he nearly despairs, but even in his despair, he, refined, he finds renewal in God's word. Verse 89, they have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forgotten or forsaken your precepts. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the, here again, joy of my heart. Always this language of desire. Samek through Tzade takes us down through verse 144. And here he expresses confidence in God's word. Verse 137, righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Verse 140, your promise is well tried, and your servant Loves you. And finally, Kopf through Tav, verse 176. And here at the end, he affirms his loyalty to God's word and promises to praise him. Verse 159, consider how I love your precepts. Give me life according to your steadfast love. Verse 160, the sum of your word is trust, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Verse 171, my lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. And so he ends with praising God. There is, there's progress from despair to delight, 
And I also think there's another pattern here. There's progress from discipline to delight. In other words, it's hard to find delight in God's word. He's, he has all these distractions as well. He's got these princes and these powerful people that are chasing him and, 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 and playing all sorts of games. And he has to keep going back to God's word, soaking himself in it and delighting in God's word. And, and, and pretty soon that discipline of going again and again to God's word becomes delight. And so it is with a lot of things that we have to discipline ourselves to do. They're not easy at first, but at the end, we take great delight. And once you delight in a thing, it's yours. You're going to go back to it again and again. So that's a that's a, a flight over Psalm 119, the, the whole psalm that will help you orient yourself in it. Uh, second question, here we want to drop down into one of these psalms. Our, our question is, what does delight in God's word, the still point of life, look like? And I, I've asked the guys to, to throw one of these stanzas up on the screen behind me. I really struggled this week. I did. I was like, wow, which stanza should I take them to? Uh, uh, Mame is actually my favorite. But in the end, I'm going to take us to pay, which starts on verse 129. And I... I'm taking us to pay because this is one of four stanzas that includes all eight of those words for God's uh, word. And because studying God's word is really a community project, uh, I'd like us to read this out loud together. All right, so starting with verse 129, and the guys are going to have a fast trigger finger up there. And when we get to the end of one, they're going to hit it maybe just once. And then we'll go to the next slide. Uh, Verse 129. Let's read together. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears, because people do not keep your law. In the first service, we actually read it antiphonally. You guys, or those guys read it, and then those guys read the B part. So the A part, the B part, it worked for about two verses, and then we all got confused. So that was actually much better. Those who delight in the word of God as the still point of their lives desire truth. Look at verse verses 129 through 130. One, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them wonderful. It's this word for extraordinary or surpassing. And when I know that about God's word, how do I respond? I treasure God's word up for future use. So if I'm meditating on this verse, then I come to God and I say, Lord, am I treasuring your word up? Am I memorizing it? Am I internalizing it? So that down the way you'll activate that memory in my mind. 
I, I desire, I want to desire truth. Uh, verse 130. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. This word gives light. It's talking about moral illumination. Who gets this illumination? That's my question. Well, the morally simple person gets gets understanding. And then I go to God and I confess to him, Lord, I am simple without you. I do not know you. I do not know how to proceed. Morally, I am dead without you. Thank you for giving me delight for your word and help me always to live in it. Uh, Verse 131 is fascinating. Uh, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your uh, commandment. Uh, That's kind of a strange image, isn't it? What, What picture comes to your mind when you read that? I think of Psalm 42, the deer panting for water. And actually, that's not at all what this is about. It's actually an entirely different word. Uh, this word means to long for something with intense desire so that there's actually like a physical effect that you will long for it so much. And in Isaiah, uh, it's actually used of a woman in labor desiring to see her child, the child there being the important part. Um, God's word produces ever more desire for God's things, and the simple are transformed. Uh, Looking at verses 132 through 135, those who delight in the word of God as the still point of their lives are also established in God's character. Uh, One of the ancients in the West, I think it was Cicero, I'm still looking for the quote, but he was a Roman in the first century B.C., just before Christ. Uh, He said that there are three ways of knowing things. You can learn things through the senses, in other words, through touch, taste, feel, hearing. You You can learn real stuff that way. You can also learn things through reason. In other words, you can think your way to right conclusions. And finally, you can learn things through revelation. And and he said, this is what's so interesting. He said, we Greeks and Romans, uh, are we know all the questions to ask for the first two. And we can learn through the senses and through, through reason. But what we don't have is reliable revelation from the gods. Now, that is fascinating when you think that up to and including his time in history, first century B.C., the one true God had been and was about finally to, to reveal himself to the Hebrew people. He'd been revealing himself through the prophets, showing them himself, and he was about to give everyone Christ, the pinnacle of his revelation uh, of himself. What the psalmist wants here. He doesn't just want to know stuff that is informational. He wants God himself. Verse 132, turn to me and be gracious to me, he said, as is your way with those who love your name. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Why? Because it's in your character to embrace those who turn to me. Or look at 135. Make your face shine upon your servant and teach me your 
statutes. Make your face shine upon your servant, and what will you do when you do this, is my question. You'll teach me your statutes. You'll form me in your character. And it's this character that the psalmist wants to live in. Uh, Keep steady my steps uh, according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. He says, verse 133, don't let me sin. Reveal yourself to me first, and then let me walk in your character and hold me there. Don't let me get away from who you are. Uh, finally, 130, one, verse 136, uh, those who delight in the word of God as the still point of their lives know what to Hope for. Look at 136. It's my favorite verse in this stanza. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. Uh, the ancients, we were talking about the ancients a minute ago, so we'll keep going. The, the ancients in the West, and the Greeks and Romans is what we're talking about, uh, had three questions that they asked, three main questions that described ultimate reality. And they called these three questions the transcendentals. The first one was, where do we find truth? Where do we find the logos? Uh, The second question is, what is the good? All right. In other words, what is moral character? This is the word ethos, where we get ethics. You can see that our stanza here has already dealt with truth and right character, ethics. But the third question is my favorite. What do we hope for, the ancients would ask. And this is the question of aesthetics or beauty. The the role of beauty in our lives is to show us what we ought to desire what we ought to hope for. And those are the three questions that that Western thought concerned itself with. And one of the things we've learned uh, since the time of Christ, as we've seen cultures come and go, is that when a culture forgets God, the first thing that dies is not truth or goodness, but it's beauty. That culture looks at beautiful, or they look, they're just confused. They, they don't know how to find beauty because they don't know what to hope for, what to desire for, and they mistake ugliness for beauty. Have you ever seen one of these, uh, ultra modern fashion shows? I mean, maybe not gone to one, but just seen it a little bit on, on television. The, the, the one where the, the, the model comes down the runway wearing those big clompy shoes, and the, the, the body of the model, whether man or woman, is heroin thin, and they're wearing gray makeup, and, and these garish, outlandish clothes. You know, the proper response to this is, first of all, that's not what the human body is supposed to look like. Uh, that isn't beautiful. At all, and, and, and that's a proper response because ultimately beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Uh, beauty is beauty because it corresponds to God Himself. 
It's an objective thing. And, and, we, and by contrast, we need to be uh, filling our homes and our lives with beauty, beautiful soundscapes, uh, beautiful visual images, and we need to work on this in a practical way. We uh, Monday is a special day at our house because it's my day off and we school and we're, we're very, very busy. But we try to spend a little extra time preparing food on Mondays because we're all together. And I, I've said this before, but Amanda collects fiesta wear. It's wonderful. I always know what to buy her. And um, one of the things we've started doing now that we have enough of it is to rotate out the colors of the seasons that we don't need. In other words, right now, fall and winter are in storage. Right? We have to decide what the fall and winter colors are, browns and oranges and you know, reds and greens, Christmas colors. That stuff's upstairs or in the cupboards. And the spring and summer colors are down where we live. And so as we're preparing food in the evenings, it's the job of the kids, isn't it, to set the table, Right? And you get to choose what colors are we going to use. You mix and match and you just create this beautiful table. Maybe you cut some flowers and you put those flowers on the table. Uh, you make name plates and you write our names so we know where to sit at the table. It's very helpful. Right? And you, you create this beautiful space in the house. And then we sit down together and we thank God for the food and for the day. And that's also where we do most of our Bible reading between the meal and dessert, wouldn't you know? Um, you know, that, that time is important. We're, we're creating beauty or at least recognizing beauty because God is beautiful. Go back to our psalm here, verse 136. My eyes shed streams of tears because people do not keep your law. He's been delighting in God's law, and now he's bawling his eyes out. What is going on here? Why Why is the psalmist crying? The reason that he's crying is that he's seen the beauty of God's word. He's delighted in God's word. He has seen God himself through his word, but the people around him don't get it. They're just dead to the beauty around them. They're dead to the delight of God's word. And, and his, his, his tears are not for himself, but it's for the people around him. Have you ever sat with somebody who's made a complete wreck of their lives? And you sit there and you, you talk with them and you hear them expressing their hearts. And, and, and you know the pathway that they ought to take. You can see it. It's so obvious to them. But you can't get them to go down that path because they aren't delighting in the right things. They, they've lost sight of beauty if they ever knew it because they don't know God. That's why the psalmist is crying here. Those who delight in the word of God as the still point of their lives, they know what to hope for. Final question, very practical. How do I find my own delight in God's word, the still point of my life? I'll give you four very practical suggestions here, and then you go home and you come up with your own. First of all, um, read wide. In God's word. Should be widely, but wide sounds more catchy. Read wide 
in God's word. Read big chunks of the Bible. Uh, when we read the Bible, we tend to suddenly become dentists or microsurgeons. And we get in there and we read, we're studying all this stuff and we're analyzing all, and there, there, are, there are skills to be learned in Bible study and that's, that's very appropriate and very good and I do that. In fact, I got all sorts of Bible study projects down in my boiler room in the basement where I do most of my reading. But sometimes all that stuff makes me tired. Sometimes I get so many projects going that I just don't do anything. I get fragmented even in my Bible study. What renews me is to just pull back and just read large sections of the Bible. That is so helpful for me. So read wide. In fact, why don't you go home this week and just read Psalm 119? It's a long chapter, so you're reading wide if you read Psalm 119. Uh, Try that this week. Second pointer or suggestion, uh, read again. Uh, Read over and over the same chunks uh, of the Bible. All right, so as you're reading Psalm 119... Uh, read it one day, then read it again, the next, and then again, and again, and again. One of the books that uh, Pastor Chris has been sharing with our children is a book book by uh, Keith Ferrin, F-E-R-R-I-N, Keith Ferrin, called How to Enjoy Reading Your Bible. And he has a bunch of just very practical suggestions that just help us delight in the reading of God's word, including, essentially, uh, read again. And his his culminating challenge is the, he has a 60-day challenge, where and he takes Philippians and he reads it over and over again, and, he, and toward the end he starts doing little different things with it, but effectively you're reading through Philippians 60 for 60 days. And he actually has a four-month challenge, too, that's the advanced program, where you're reading the same part of the Bible again again and again and again for four months. <clears throat> so read wide, read again. Thirdly, read together. Uh, find a Bible buddy. Uh, actually, we approached that when we read off the screen together. This is something we do as a community. But just like, you know, uh, we enjoy eating together. I mean, eating alone, knowing how to eat by yourself is an important skill. But we like to eat together, don't we? Same way with Bible study. You've got to be able to discipline yourself, to do your own Bible reading when you're by yourself. But it's not an isolated discipline. What we really need to be doing is reading Psalm 119 together this week and finding somebody to talk about it with. I mean, maybe, maybe read it out loud with somebody, share with somebody, just bring it into your, bring it into where you live and, and talk about it with your family or a circle of friends. Read wide, read again, read together. And finally, uh, read to find Jesus. Right? Ultimately, Jesus is the still point uh, of our lives. And Scripture is a still point because Scripture points to Jesus. Uh, one more verse and then we'll be done. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke 24, I've lost a page. Uh, There it is, I still have it. Luke 24, verse 44. This is the Emmaus Road. 
Jesus has appeared to these men he's walking with, and he's been explaining, and they're, they're talking about scripture, oh, you know, uh, we're looking for Jesus. <laughs> and then he says, and then he opens their eyes, he opens their mind. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Right? Essentially, you have the law, the prophets, and then the writings, and the Psalms would have been the best known of the writings, everything that wasn't the law or the, or the prophets. Everything, in other words, what we call the Old Testament, points right to Jesus. And we'll talk more about that next week. But as you read through Psalm 119, again and again this week, and maybe you drop down into one of those stanzas and you do some meditation, talk, talk through it with the Lord as you ask your questions, ask yourself also, how does this psalm, how does this section that I'm reading Point to Jesus. And I think that you will make some observations that you haven't made before. Uh, We find delight when God's word becomes the still point of our lives. And we desperately need a still point. And God's word has been revealed from God himself to be that still point in our lives. Um, I have four copies of How to Enjoy Reading Your Bible. And uh, I tell you what I'll do. After the service, I'm just going to come walk right down there. I'll stand there with four copies. It's going to take some pluck. But if you want one of these, you got to walk up to me and put out your hand, and you'll say, I want one of them. And I'll just I'll give you one of these books, and then um, if, if you're not one of the first four, then uh, you can pick up a copy of your own if you want to. How to Enjoy Reading Your Bible, Keith Farron. So let's thank the Lord for his word. Father, we thank you for uh, not just giving us information about yourself, but revealing yourself so that we can know truth, so that we can know your character because we know you and and our lives can be patterned after your character. And, And in all of this, you shape and reshape our desires so that we know what beauty is because we know you. And in doing so, we we find a light. And your word becomes the still point of our lives, which we desperately need. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.